Welcome back to another episode of The Explanation. And on this one, Ian and I are going BTS. But not the boy band. We're going back to school. I am Silvia Salazar from Tono Latino, and I love researching and learning what's going on in U.S. politics so I can share that with you in a way that's pleasant and encourages a bit of activism. And my name is Ian Stevens, and I am a political scientist and an activist and a YouTuber. My YouTube channel is called The Lucretia Report. If you want to follow the show, you can follow us on Twitter at Explanation underscore pod, on Instagram at The Explanation Pod, and on Facebook at The Explanation Podcast. And you can follow me on Twitter at IanCST. And me at Contono Latino on Twitter or at Tono.Latino on Instagram. And we definitely want to hear from you. So if you have any thoughts or feedback about the show, questions, things you like, things you didn't like, be sure to either tweet at us at explanation underscore pod, send us a message on Instagram, or email us. This is an episode where I definitely want to hear a lot from our listeners. Because today we're going to talk about the U.S. education system, more centered around public schools, mostly elementary and secondary. And... A lot of the information available today discusses the issues that we had prior to the pandemic. And obviously, the pandemic has only exacerbated some of these issues and created new ones. So my intent with this episode is just to get everyone thinking about some of these issues and some of the changes that we might need to make once we can return children back to school fully, like we used to before 2020. And Ian, I can tell you right now that there are too many issues. I have over 16 pages printed out in front of me, and there's great ideas for improvement, but unfortunately, a lot of these ideas for improvement don't have enough data to justify their broad implementation. So again, it's just things that we need to think about, innovative ways that we could perhaps change or improve education. So I want this to be an ongoing discussion not only with you, but with our listeners. So this is definitely a great episode where we can hear a lot of ideas. And not only about what is wrong with the education system, but also what you've seen works well, either in non-public schools, non-traditional schools, or non-U.S. schools. And in fact, some of these issues or ideas are so important that they will have an entire episode dedicated later this season. I know we already talked about some of them with Coffrey a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, and there's another one coming up. So to start us off, I want to ask you, Ian, what do you think are the most important issues or failures in the education system in the United States? Give me maybe five. I'm going to write them down and I'm going to start discussing those if they match what I have on my list. Okay, so I think that the disparities of the quality of our schools is a really big problem. I went to high school in a really good school, but when I was in elementary school, I went to a school in a different school district that did not have the amount of funding that my high school did. And so I've seen firsthand the disparity in these different levels of education. And I'm glad that I got to go to the better funded high school before that. But I know that there are millions of people out there that don't have a high school that's got all of the money that mine did. Another problem I think is, and this is probably something that is wider than just education, but our schools have to be safe. And there have been a lot of instances of violence at our schools in recent years. If school shootings, Parkland and Sandy Hook and all of those others. And, you know, even not even 
just mass shootings like that, but individualized instances of violence, our schools are not nearly as safe as I think they should be. I think finding a way to make our schools more preparatory for real life is important. You hear things all the time about like, oh, I never learned to do this in school. I never learned to do that in school, but thank God I know this obscure thing that I've never used. And while I do think it's important to learn things like the Pythagorean theorem and stuff that you won't use as often in real life, I I do think that our schools fail people to prepare for the kind of information they're going to encounter as adults. And what I particularly have in mind is the way that people don't understand how to differentiate fact from fiction on Facebook or the internet, how to differentiate disinformation or how to trust, how to know what to trust. And the way that people fall for conspiracies and things like that. I wish there was a way that our schools could better prepare people for that. I think that one counts as double because you're getting a little bit into technology, technology and education. So I'm going to count that as two. So if you want, you can give me one more because you gave me a lot of really good ones and I have information on all of them and even more. So if you have one more, I'll listen. And if not, we're just going to jump right in. Yeah, if I, I mean, I'll probably think of one after we're done recording, uh, So why don't we jump right in? What I found interesting is that you gave me the first two in the exact order that I had them in my notes. So it was kind of (laughs) creepy. You talked about disparity in schools. The way I have it listed is just deficits and government funding for schools. But basically, it's, it's the fact that schools don't have enough funding. And for more than 90% of K through 12 schools, funding comes from state and local governments. And that's largely generated by sales and income taxes. But the problem is that funding has not increased with need. And many states are actually giving schools funding that is lower than it was before the Great Recession. So lower funding means fewer teachers, fewer programs, and diminished resources. A lot of the conversation that we've had, like we did on our first episode discussing redlining and housing inequity. We talked about how income taxes partially fund public schools. And in fact, about 81% of local revenues were the results of property taxes. And that just means that more than a third, about 36% of all school funding comes specifically from property taxes. And that's something that we discussed more thoroughly in episode one of this season. But it just goes to show exactly what you were saying, that some schools are going to be better off because they're in a specific area. Uh, They're part of a wealthier school district. And even if you're two streets down from the other one, you can get a really, really crappy education. So that is definitely a big issue. It was number one for you. It's number one on my list as well. You also mentioned school safety. And that is something that, as a mother, obviously, it's like the biggest nightmare for any parent to be in this constant state of alert, thinking that there could be a shooting at your kid's school. And like you said, even... 
elementary schools are not safe. So it has nothing to do with the age of the kids attending the school because we had Sandy Hook a number of years ago. And that's something that I don't think we will ever be able to get over from. Over 50% of teenagers said that they're worried about the possibility of gun violence in school. And now teachers are also all around the country facing the problem of figuring out how to prevent attacks and not only protect the lives of students, but also themselves, personnel. I mean, it's just something that you shouldn't have to do as a teacher. You become a teacher because you want to get students to learn about the world, teach them how to solve problems, teach them how to think outside the box, not think about how they're going to duck and cover when there's a school shooter. Obviously, like you mentioned, Parkland, there are some people that suggest that we need teachers with concealed weapons and that we need more security guards in schools, but Critics argue that more guns in school could just lead to more accidents and injuries. I had a conversation once with my wife and my parents, and my wife's from a different country, and my parents are obviously grew up in a different era than me. And we were talking about how the drills, the safety drills that you do in school, are representative of the time and place that you went to school. We started out talking about how when I was in school, we had tornado drills because here in Texas, we get tornadoes. And when Jess was in school, they had earthquake drills because uh, where she grew up, their earthquakes are a problem. And my mother mentioned that when she was growing up in the Cold War, they had nuclear bomb drills because that was a concern. And when I was growing up, we had we called them lockdown drills, but they were essentially active shooter drills because that was something that had by then become something that was so prevalent that it was considered equal to fire drills or tornado drills as a threat to, as a threat that students could face at school. And I think that that's really eerie. Let's keep talking about some of the issues. And one of the ones that you mentioned... I'm going to count that as number four, and then we're going to go to number three and you're on your list, is challenges with technology and education. As an engineer and as a parent of a child who's attending school and using now a lot more technology than she was before the pandemic, I have a lot of thoughts on this. The thing is that students today have grown up using technology and they kind of come to expect it in the classroom, but... There's also this large argument about how much technology should play, how much of a role technology should play in education. The interesting thing is that I believe maybe a year and a half ago, right before the pandemic, we had very, very different stances on this issue than when where we are right now. A lot of the people that support technology in the classroom say that there's a potential for more active student engagement, uh, provides instant access to up-to-date in information and resources, but critics say that it could also be a distraction. There's one thing that I also think technology helps with, making the, I'm going to say the terrain a little bit more even because you do have to take into account differences in 
I don't know if personality is the right term, but you do have extroverted students that like participating actively in the classroom that have great ideas, but also you might have introverted students that don't want to participate in the classroom in the same way, but maybe through technology, something like uh, direct messages with the teacher could provide a lot of insight and a lot of great thoughts that would be missed if we only talk about the traditional form of education. So that's one piece where I think technology can help. I found a great article from the New York Times where they asked students their opinions on the current education system. And I want to read you a quote from a student from North Carolina with regards to technology and education. This is what she had to say. People my age have smaller vocabularies, and if they don't know a word, they just quickly look it up online instead of learning and internalizing it. The same goes for facts and figures and other subjects. Don't know who someone was in history class? Just look them up and read their bio. Don't know how to balance a chemical equation? The internet knows. Can't solve a math problem by hand? Just sneak out the phone calculator. My largest grievance with technology and learning has more to do with the social and psychological aspects, though. We've decreased ability to meaningfully communicate, and we want everything, things, experiences, gratification, delivered to us at Amazon Prime speed. Interactions and experiences have become cheap and two-dimensional because we see life through a screen. I think that leads us right into the other issue that you talked about. How old was the kid that said that quote? That's very. Uh, that's a very articulate uh, kid. Yes, I was very impressed with what she had to say. Her name is Grace Robertson from Hoggard High School, Wilmington, North Carolina. What she says leads us right into the other issue that you mentioned about education not preparing us or not preparing children for real life. And that goes to the problems with the Common Core curriculum. So the Common Core state standards were something that was developed to specify exactly what students should know before graduating high school. It was developed in 2009 so that it would promote educational equity across the country so that all students would be held to the same standardized testing requirements. Like you said, how to do Pythagorean theorems and stuff like that. Some people see the problem as federal intrusion into the state control of education. And others say that it just doesn't allow for teacher innovation and flexibility with the learning process. Most states adopted the standards when they were introduced, but more than a dozen have since repealed or revised them. And this is where I found some things that were very interesting. Again, agreeing with what you said at the beginning, we need children to be prepared for real life. And going back to what this teenager, Grace Robertson, had to say, you can look everything up on your phone or your computer or your tablet right now. So we need to teach kids how to solve problems, how to think, and how to innovate. We need to teach them how to think for themselves and show them that it's okay to ask questions. We have to help them change the world through their ideas, not to just limit themselves to what 
the core, common core curriculum expects them to do. And so we have to encourage a little bit more like entrepreneurship, critical thinking, problem solving skills. And here's where I want to give you another quote by another student who also happens to be from North Carolina, Eliana. Oh, same high school. We need to learn about real life, things that can actually benefit us. An art student isn't going to use biology and trigonometry in life. Exams just seem so pointless in the long run. Why do we have to dedicate our high school lives studying equations we'll never use? Why do exams focusing on pointless, pointless topics end up determining our entire future? What do you think about that? The first quote you read, the, the two quotes actually seem to be somewhat in opposition to each other to me. Where the first quote, it seemed to me more framing it as a negative that, oh, you know, kids these days just look everything up. Um, and it's true that when I was in school, I was told you won't have a calculator with you everywhere you go. And no, we sure showed them, didn't we? <laughs> um, but maybe as the second kid was referring to, maybe that's a good point that we need to rethink the kinds of things that are taught in school because the kinds of things that have traditionally been taught in school are things you can look up now and you can just, you cannot know these off the top of your head and still be able to figure it out. And so maybe we should be focusing more on almost like what universities, you know, people say that you don't really go to college to learn your major, you go to college to learn how to think. And maybe we should bring some expertise, uh, some kind of methods that are used at universities into lower levels. I do think, though, that it's important to learn things like history and such, though. In the first quote they referenced, though, if you don't know who a historical figure is, you can look it up. But the issue is that that's all fine and good when you're studying for a test. But later in life, if you don't know, it's not about knowing who is this person. It's about knowing these stories and knowing why things happen the way they do or you know that that whole additive that whole adage of trying to learn from history i think that it's valuable to understand the stories even if you don't you don't have to have dates and names but to understand broadly what's happened to us as a species to try i to, agree with you yeah yeah it's more about the context versus do you know the exact date when this place was invaded and what was the name of the person that led the charge. That part we can memorize, we can look up in three seconds, but having important discussions about why this war happened, why these people won, why these people were defeated, how, what brought about certain unrest and rebellions, that's the part that's important and that's not what you're going to look up in three seconds on your phone. Yeah, like to give an example, so it's one thing to know that Reconstruction ended in, I think it's 1876. That's something you can look up, but knowing how Reconstruction ended and the political and social influences of the end of Reconstruction, that's stuff that still affects us today and is still the root of a lot of political conversations that we're having, a lot of conversations we've had in this show and we'll have in this show later on. Everything you were talking about is another, leads us right into another issue that's very related to Common Core, and that's the emphasis on standardized testing. 
because this focus on standardized testing has basically shifted so that schools and teachers are judged based on students' test scores, which a lot of people argue is not a fair or accurate measure of efficacy because now you are, in a way, a lot of teachers are just teaching to the test. So they just teach to, they teach their students so that they know what to answer on the test, but not really teaching them the whole, the whole thing. So to be clear, with the current system as it's set up where teachers are graded based on how their students do in these standardized tests, they don't really have an option but to teach the test right now, do they? Well, the the ones that follow, like I said, some of the states, more than a dozen, have already kind of modified or changed or revised the Common Core curriculum, probably because of this. And or partially because of this, if you just give a teacher and this this part of the argument against it, that it kills innovation, you can think of other ways to teach something. But if they're telling you, you need to teach this and it needs to be taught this way and you can't expand and you can only be graded on a student answering these specific questions and you're also underfunded, so you have a lot of students and you don't have enough resources, then it just, it all feeds into it, into each other. And I kind of just jumped a little bit ahead, but another issue that we have with education is the decreased teacher salaries. So we know that teacher salaries are not impressive. And sadly, in most states, they have decreased steadily over time. So research shows that the average salary for public elementary and secondary school teachers dropped by nearly 5% between the 2009-2010 school year and the 2016-2017 school years. And then I did some research on other teacher salaries. And if we just look at 2016-2017 dollars, a teacher made less than $59,000 dollars in 2016-2017, okay? But in 1999-2000, a teacher made almost $42,000. However, because of how much purchasing power those dollars had, that would be the equivalent of $60,000 in 2016-2017 dollars. And I just told you that in 2016 and 2017, a teacher made less than $59,000. So they're making less money now than they did before. They have less funding in their schools. They're making less money. It all just perpetuates the cycle. Ian, another issue is growing problems with student poverty. So more than 50% of the public school population in the United States was made up of low-income students. Now, this is a significant increase from 38% in 2001. More than 50% now versus 38% in 2001. 40% or more of public school students qualify for free or reduced price lunches in 40 states. Studies have shown that low-income students tend to perform lower than affluent students and family income shows strong correlation with student achievement, 
measured by these standardized tests. Another topic that we're going to discuss in our second half of the show is related to mental health. And the information that I have is before the pandemic, but obviously those numbers are going to change significantly once we have more studies about what's going on right now. A 2018 study showed that nearly two-thirds of college students experienced overwhelming anxiety. And the thing is that anxiety has been reported in younger students as well. So students are anxious and there's not enough resources at schools to address some of these issues. There's supposed to be, you know, like student, a counselor by, for each school or a certain number of students. And obviously if you don't have enough funding for the actual school and enough to pay the teachers, you're going to have less money for the counselor that's not being prioritized by the school. So that's one of the issues that we need, that we're going to talk a little bit more about. That's one of the areas that is suggested as something that we can improve. Thankfully, there's awareness of mental health issues. Now it's increasing and there are programs that are being implemented and being tested with great success to help students manage some of their like mental and emotional health. This one was on its own, but it kind of relates to something that we've already talked about. And it's the lack of teacher innovation and outdating teaching methods. Because the typical pattern of teaching is somebody stands in front of the classroom, lectures, and expects students to pretty much memorize the content, and then take a test to see if they got it. But we already discussed why that kind of doesn't work in today's world, and also something that I alluded to earlier about student personalities. You have introvert, ambivert, and extroverted personalities, and they all have distinctive characteristics, and they will perform differently depending on the methodologies used for teaching. So the teaching methods from, you know, a couple decades ago are just not going to work for the modern student. And that's also without taking into account this entire era of technology where you have all the answers at literally the tip of your fingers with just, you know, a couple of swipes of a screen. This other one I found really interesting because I had never thought about it, but the more I think about it, the more I like it, and I want to hear your opinion on it. More schools need to consider year-round schooling. So the traditional school year, with about three months of vacation days every summer, it was implemented because America was an agricultural society, and it was not because kids needed to have downtime and they needed to be kids and decompress. This was just because of economic necessity. But if we shift that to our needs of today, year-round schooling might actually provide students with a little bit of an academic advantage. The students that are at risk do a lot better without this humongous break. Three months. Can you think of how much you can forget in three months? And then the students that like do well anyway, 
they wouldn't be harmed by a year-round schedule. Now, that talks from the perspective of the student. I also think about it as the perspective of a working parent, where every summer, all I'd think about is, what am I going to do with my kids? What am I going to do with my kids for three months in the summer if I'm a working parent? One of the issues we're not going to go deep into because we're going to have an entire episode dedicated to this is students getting lost to the school to prison pipeline. Sadly, over half of black young men who attend urban high schools don't earn a diploma. And out of these dropouts, nearly 60% will go to prison at some point. Sadly, the statistics are very similar to ones associated with young Latino men. And as I said, this is an entire topic that we have a whole episode dedicated to. But I just want to leave you with some numbers that caught my attention. The U.S. spends an average of a little over $12,000 per student per year. This is the numbers that we have most up to date right now. In 2018, the Bureau of Prisons reported that the average cost for a federal inmate was $36,300 per year. We're talking about almost three times as much to house a federal inmate than what is invested on average per student per year in the United States. Well, I mean, I guess that really shows where the priorities are, doesn't it? Exactly. We have a whole episode dedicated to the school to prison pipeline coming out on June 15th, where we talk to former congressional candidate Candace Valenzuela. And Candace is also a, she was a school board member for a long time, so she has intimate knowledge of this issue. I'm feeling a little negative after all the things that I told you were wrong. So I want to give you a little bit of information on some emerging trends that could make things better. But I warned you at the beginning of the episode that there's not a lot of, you know, data or research right now that shows us how well these things work, but at least... It's, it sounds promising. One is to increase what is called maker learning initiatives. So in many schools, teaching is the focus instead of focusing education on student learning. The focus should not be teaching. The focus should be student learning. And this goes back to my argument about the teachers teaching to the test Again, they're focused on the teaching, not focused on making sure that their students are learning. So this maker education initiative allows students to follow their own interests and to test their own solutions for problems, kind of in a DIY, do-it-yourself approach to education. They learn in more collaborative spaces. They identify problems. They create inventions. They make prototypes. And they keep working on something until they have a final result that works. Is It's more about problem solving and creative thinking versus let's just memorize a bunch of stuff for a test and that's it. Yeah, I think that I've heard a lot. I don't know if I've heard this specific 
program, but I've heard a lot of talk about the... Uh, you hear about things like this happening at like charter schools and private schools and such. What has been the distribution of this among public schools? Are you, uh, do you know? No. And there's little evidence on the trend as of yet, but it is growing quickly. My daughter's daycare had a very similar approach to what I just described. Instead of a Montessori approach that a lot of people know, this one is called the Reggio Emilia. The students decide or they collectively guide their learning based on their interests. So if they, for example, are interested in bugs, the teacher goes deep into bugs and uses a lot of questions to make the children think versus just lecture them on bugs. Insects have six legs or whatever. It's more about like, let's look at the Let's look at this insect. How many legs does it have? What do you notice against this? Oh, this is a spider. Oh, it has more legs. How many more legs does this have? So the kids have to think and observe versus just recite things from memory. Mm -hmm. And then like they can internalize that an insect has eight legs instead of just knowing that an insect has eight legs or six legs <laughs> and that an insect has six legs. <laughs> I was going to say, I was like, Ian. Uh, but it is a way of teaching them how to look at the world and how to ask questions versus just recite things like a parrot. Another thing is moving away from the letter grade system. We talked about how there's standardized tests. Obviously, students need to be evaluated so that you can test whether your, your teaching strategies and your curriculum is working and also to see if the student is growing, right? You need to know if what you're teaching is helping the student learn and if the student is progressing. But for many years, we've used letter grades or their percentage equivalents to assess how students are doing. And now leaders in education feel that the traditional letter grade model is not a sufficient way to measure most highly valued in the world right now. Because I could just keep coming back to the same terms of creativity, problem solving and innovation, entrepreneurship. That's not something you're going to measure with a letter grade. So in 2017, there was something created called the Mastery Transcript Consortium that includes over 300 private high schools. These schools have adopted a digital system that provides qualitative descriptions of student learning and samples of work instead of the grade-based transcript system. And the good thing is that there's a number of public schools that are quickly adopting this trend. And then there's now a nationwide shift towards mastery-based or competency-based learning so that we are focusing on students progressing and showing improvement versus nailing a certain grade. So could you give me an example of what what the grades would be if not letters or percentage? There's no grade. So what happens is that the teacher will take samples of the student's work. I saw a presentation about this from a, a teacher who teaches first grade. And in first grade is when students are learning how to write. And so what he does, the teacher does, is take a sample 
when the school starts, let's say like around October, and shows how the student is writing something, and you can notice that the student doesn't stay within the lines, flips a number of letters, does a lot of sounding out. So for example, my daughter, she wrote me a surprise little note the other day and said, dear mama, D-I-R, because she doesn't know that dear mama is D-E-A-R. So you take a screen or like a picture of that, and then you take another photo of the student's work in December, and you notice that the student's handwriting has improved. They they stay within the lines. They skip less lines. They flip less letters. So instead of a B flip to a D, you know, they are more consistent with what they're expecting. And they're sounding out less and less letters. And then you compare that to how they write in February and how they write in May. And you can see the progress. It's very evident. But are you going to give them... How do you give that a specific percentage grade? You can clearly see that the student is progressing. You can clearly see the areas that they need to improve. But you see that through practice and repetition, they're getting better and better. And by the end of the school year, they are writing without flipping letters, staying within the lines, not skipping any lines, and sounding out minimal words. You see the difference? So what I'm picturing is, say you're a parent and your kid brings home a report card. What I'm picturing is instead of saying B or 86%, it's for each class it has like a little write-up of what the teacher thinks they uh, need improvement on and are improving on and what they're doing well, what they're doing not well. Is, is Am I picturing this right? Yep, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm picturing this especially for... English and history and things like that that are a little bit more subjective than math or science about whether you got it right or wrong. So say you're doing a history problem and they ask you about, oh, what happened when the War of 1812? And you include some of the information they're looking for, but not some of the other information that they're looking for. How do you, it's hard to place a percentage of like, how correct is this answer if it's partly correct or if like a couple of things are wrong, but some things are right. If it's a mixture, it's hard to place a percentage that's not, you know, when it's between zero and 100. I also wonder about as you get closer to going to college, would you still need some kind of like numerical way for colleges to look at, to look at how you did or in applications or have any of your sources discussed that? I'm guessing that the since there's this now master transcript consortium, they must produce some sort of transcript that the colleges can understand and translate to whatever their system is. Okay. Another another emerging trend is something called flipped learning. So instead of the traditional approach of the teacher standing in front of the classroom, lecturing, and then the students doing homework uh, on assignments to enhance what their understanding was of the subject, it's flipped. And this kind of might make you think about 
college where you get the, the syllabus at the beginning of the year so you know what's going to be taught on what day. And with flipped learning is a little bit more like that where you prepare ahead of time. You read, you watch videos, you kind of teach yourself the subject and then you use the class time to expand on the material. You have group discussions, you do collaborative projects, etc. What do you think about that? It makes me think of some things we did in English class when I was in school. We called them Socratic seminars or Socratic circles or whatever, where we're reading a book, we're reading, say we're reading War and Peace or The Great Gatsby or whatever. We read, we're expected to read that on our own at home. And then we come into class and they would have all the desks moved to the side of the room and we'll sit in a circle and discuss the book, almost like a book club. Another area for concern that we mentioned was the mental health of the students. So now there's a lot more people that are aware of this and they're moving towards nurturing the whole student with social and emotional learning as well as academic. So now we have growing consensus that schools have responsibility to protect and develop students socially and emotionally in addition to their cognitive skills. This is something that I think we might have considered before the pandemic, but now with this chaotic world we've been thrown this into the last year and a half, we know how important it is to have young young kids or teenagers, young adults that are mentally, emotionally, and socially strong to handle new situations. And I think that is the perfect topic to end on before we talk to the person we're going to interview today. Yeah, we've got one of our most exciting guests of the season, don't we, Sylvia? Yes, we're going to talk to Marianne Williamson. She's a best-selling author, a political activist. In fact, she was a former presidential candidate and a spiritual thought leader. Hi, hi Marianne. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. So the what we talked about in the podcast today was issues related to children and education. And specifically, we talked about your whole student's plan. And it proposes a lot of reforms to American education. But American education is pretty decentralized compared to most countries where local uh, jurisdictions and states have a lot of control. And while the federal government does have some tools to try to influence what goes on, most of the decisions don't lay in their hands. So my first question is, I was wondering what you think is the most practical way to implement a systemic education reform in that kind of a system? Well, first of all, we need to rethink what a practical way of strategizing something means. You know, in business, it is now understood. You can't just dictate to employees, this is what we're going to do now. Life doesn't quite work that way. You need to enroll people. So in politics, we jump right into what are we going to do when 
the first question is, what is the result that we really want? And to enroll a country in that. So, for instance, JFK didn't send a missive to NASA and say, we are going to land a man on the moon in 10 years. He said to the American people, we are going to land a man on the moon in 10 years. That engaged the American imagination. And that is more than metaphor. That is more than symbol. It became a national goal. And because so much of the country was enrolled in that goal, it made possible implementation uh, and agendas and strategies that would not otherwise have been available. So the first thing we need to do is to enroll the American people in the idea that every school in America, every public school in America should be a palace, a world-class palace of culture and learning and the arts. That's the first thing. What is it we're seeking to achieve? When I was running for president, I was so moved by the what's called the governor schools in South Carolina. And actually, I have been told that these governor schools, this model also exists in other states, although I have not, or at least I think in one other state, although I haven't seen it. And the governor school, there was one in math and science and one in arts and the humanities. They are public schools. Uh, there's tremendous competition to get in. And I'm telling you, if either of you walked with me through these schools, you go, oh, I want to go here. It, it was unbelievable. This is what it should be for every school child in America. That's the first thing. Let's lay out the goal. Let's also, uh, as it were, quote unquote, sell the American people on the realization that right now China is supposed to be ahead of us economically by 2028. There are certain things that absolutely must occur if the United States is even have an opportunity to even compete as a, as a, as a world power the way we have been used to, uh, over the next 20 or 30 years. The next thing we need to recognize is that there are tens of millions of American children who live in, who go to schools, who live, first of all, in chronic trauma, a lot of which is related not only to their homes, but to their schools. We have tens of millions of American children who go to school every day in schools that don't even have the resources to teach a child to read. Child who can't learn to read by the age of eight is on that school to prison pipeline. Chances of high school much, uh, much reduced. Chances of high school graduation reduced. Chances of incarceration drastically increased. And we have millions of American children who go to schools who, because of the public funding issue that you have pointed out, are doomed or shackled from a very, very early age because they will not, because of our funding, be able to get the kind of educational opportunities that kids in more economically advantaged situations uh, will get. We need to discuss the fact that our economic system was devised before women were part of the public debate. And child raising was just seen as something that, you know, oh, that was women's work. Well, we are part of the, uh, of the debate right now. I saw how, you know, Sylvia just raised her hand. This is something the American woman should not stand for. We're here now. We have a voice. And feminism should not just be a voice about opportunities for women. It should be an opportunity for children as well. We need to have these larger conversations about how capitalism, because capitalism has no use for children or the elderly. And because our our 
political system due to the undue influence of corporate money on our political system, our politics is guided more by corporatist values than by humanitarian values. We shouldn't be run like a business. We should be run like a family. So we need to deal with the fact that our government now systemically neglects the needs of children. It's peripheral. So even when you ask me a question like, what would be your plan? It's still like, given the fact that children are systemically neglected in America, how could we maybe make it a little better? And what we do is we end up wasting millions because we're not spending billions. We need to enroll the American people in the idea that we need a massive front ending of our resources in the direction of children. And I mean massive. We, the, by the age of three, 80% of, of brain development is accomplished. By the age of five, 90% of brain development is accomplished. We have children, the, the, the current establishment, it, as far as they can go, is we should have universal preschool. It is so much bigger than that. We have children who are traumatized before preschool. We have children in elementary schools in America who are on suicide watch. So when you ask me what's the plan, the first plan is to have a conversation that we're not yet having, where we unabashedly proclaim that we have such a crisis here, that childhood in America is a, a children in America accept the children of the 1% who, who, most of whom don't even send their kids to public schools, are, are facing a a trauma that we pay for. We pay for it in terms of mental health crises later in their lives. We pay for it in terms of delinquency. We pay for it in terms of crime. We pay for it in uh, terms of incarceration, although part of the obscenity there is then the incarceration itself is turned into a, uh, into a profit center. For that matter, depression is turned into a, a profit center. So that, that's my answer to you is we need to back up. And just really put it on the table that what is needed is a massive shift, a massive change in our ultimate goal and move back from there. Yeah, I'm very sympathetic to the idea of rethinking our entire approach to education systematically. And I think to most things, because like with most things in our society, education was built to advance capitalism where the purpose of women under capitalism was to create more workers and the purpose of education was to turn people into workers. And so if we are going to try to move away from the idea that people are machines of profit and nothing more than that, then part of that has to be to rethink education. Uh, you talked a little bit about the finances also, and that was something I wanted to ask you about because we talked in our first episode when we were talking about redlining and housing inequality and how that affects schools about how a lot of schools, like you said, are underprivileged because of where they are and the way that they are tax funded, at least largely through property taxes. And I think that it's probably impossible to change some of these systemic inequalities in our schools without addressing the way that they're funded and the way that the value of homes in the area affects the quality of schools. So would you propose to reform that funding model? And what would uh, what do you think it would look like? Well, there are a lot of uh, areas in which this funding model is already being worked on. I mean, this is not like a new subject. And there are states uh, and there are federal programs that have made it. Uh, there can be mandates. There can be minimum standards of mandates. There can be 
uh, grants to the states. There can be a mandate on a federal level that a certain a certain minimum of quality is to be achieved and that where the state budget will not handle it in terms of compensating for certain neighborhoods, that federal funds will be made available. That's math. That's technical. <laughs> The, the first issue is that we have to change the consciousness to know that it is to, to the point where people get that it is unacceptable for any child in America to receive less than the highest quality. And when I say the highest quality, I mean the highest quality. I mean a world class education, which only a massive, a massive change, not only in funding structure, but in operation will achieve. You wanted to create a department of children and youth. Uh, and youth, excuse me, focused on improving the lives of the children. Uh, and one of its immediate tasks was to conduct a whole study on all department programs related to anyone between the ages of zero and 18, uh, and identifying specific ways to improve their quality of life. And obviously, you don't have that report. Uh, but you probably have some ideas that you think could be tackled quickly, and effectively. Uh, and also, one thing that we haven't really touched on is a lot of the ideas that you had were developed pre-pandemic and a lot of the issues that you were saying were bad enough before we were thrown into this chaos of the pandemic that has just exacerbated all of the problems and all of the things that you wanted to address with the whole child program addressing social and emotional needs that now have become completely obvious to everyone, not just us parents. So can you tell us a little bit more about that? As you just said yourself, these situations existed pre-pandemic, and many of them have been made more uh, obvious because of the pandemic. The issue is much bigger than education. I know one of the words you keep using, Ian, is education. This is much bigger than education. This is nutrition. This is health. Uh, this is social and emotional learning. This is the fact that even if you have a world-class school, if the child goes back home and, you know, the home is in dire poverty and all of the dysfunctions that are statistically are so probable within certain situations, then it's not going to change. So we need the idea to me of a Department of Children and Youth is that you convene a lot of the problem solving that we need in the 21st century will come from convening experts that are multidisciplinary. Because as we approach a whole, a whole person perspective on any kind of systems change, we now have to apply that to politics. So this would be child psychologists. This would be neuroscientists who, who have information about the development of a child brain early childhood. It would have to do with nutrition. It would have to do with health. It would have to do with maternal health. It would have to do with health of a pregnant woman. It would have one of the things we need is vast new funding for our library system. Uh, many of the programs that uh, mothers want to go to with their children, mommy and me type programs, these should be available. They should be free. They should be at, you, at libraries. There should be a recognition that there is no power in the wind or in the sun or underneath the ground or in any of the natural uh, sectors that can compare to the potential power of a child's brain, of the human brain, period. So uh, what we need to do is bring all together all these areas of expertise, most of which do not have a serious voice in the way our government functions, because our government continues to put it into things like education, 
smaller child, uh, smaller class size classrooms, which are important. But the level of crisis at this point is so much greater than that. It, it we're, we're like the political system. Just there's no authentic truth telling here for how serious this problem is. And so we need to start at the beginning. And here, see, it, in this area, to me, as in so many. America does not lack the genius. We don't lack the problem solvers. We don't lack the projects. We don't lack the people who understand what a child needs in order to thrive, what a family needs in order to thrive, what is necessary nutritionally, what is necessary on all these levels. What we lack is a space in the public dialogue where this is then a conduit that makes, uh, becomes a conduit that makes its way into our political operational conversations as you were talking about before Ian. Did that answer your question uh, Sylvia there was a lot there did I did I is there anything I left out? You said a lot of really good things. I'm just really do you think we have a chance of pressuring those in power to think about creating that department of children and youth because you pointed out how it is not just about educating them and reducing small class sizes, but also focusing on their nutritional needs, the fact that a lot of them depend on free or reduced price lunches, and that we need to actually give them the necessary food to start their day. And by the way, lunch is already the second meal, but if they came hungry and arrived at eight o'clock or whenever they arrive at school, the first half of the day is already wasted because they're starving. And if they didn't have a home, even before the pandemic and so many people at risk of being evicted, if they don't have a place to call their own, they slept in their car, then it just has so many levels. Oh, the most important thing you said was pressuring those in power. This is the deal. And I say this to both of you as young people. Do I think we have a chance of pressuring a 65-year-old man who has a lot of money in the bank and whose kids have been to private school? No, I don't. What we need is for the two of you to run for office. That's what we need. We need to replace those people. We're past the point of trying to pressure those people. They don't get it and they won't get it. When somebody who, who, who can't afford to buy, who can afford to buy a $600 pair of shoes is mulling over whether or not it is reasonable to give $300 to someone who cannot afford food, there is, this is not about pressuring that person. This is about replacing that person as a lawmaker. What we need is a massive infusion, not just in terms of who you vote for, but in, in turning the popular imagination among people, really such as yourselves, to actually running, getting your friends to run, become active in campaigns. And a lot of the what we're talking about, as you said yourselves at the beginning, is on a state level. I mean, look at what Texas is doing. Texas is passing a law that teachers cannot talk not only about race, but any current events. Now, people on the left who are more likely to be having more of the conversations that you guys and I are having, there is a tendency to get all excited about the hot and sexy presidential campaigns, maybe the midterms, but there's not enough of an adrenaline rush or it is so perceived on the school board and state elections. That is what is needed. We need a shift in consciousness about electoral politics. And that has to go beyond uh, just who you vote for, because on the um, 
even on the primary level is where so much of this contest is, because if, even if you're in the Democratic Party and you just get the corporatist candidates, then it's just going to be a better version of the same old, same old. They think they're they're so great and progressive because they're saying we should have free preschool. And as Sylvia said, it is so much bigger than that. So when you say, do I think we can pressure them? I think at this point you need to shift into no, but you could replace them. Um, you mentioned the uh, law in Texas and the teaching of current events and racism. And I actually want to ask you about one of the points in your whole child plan specifically. You say in your website that you want to restore the teaching of American history and civics in order to teach American values in our democratic system of government. And as you alluded to, that's been pretty heated in the last few years as people have been talking about the history of white supremacy in America and the Confederacy. And there have been things like the New York Times' 1619 project and retaliation projects like Donald Trump's 1776 project and Texas's 1836 project. So I just wanted to ask you if you could elaborate a little more on what your vision for that is. We are living at a time where there are people on the right who only want to talk about what America has done right and have no listening for what America has done wrong. There was a big brouhaha several years ago with the textbooks. It was Houghton Mifflin, and it had to, it was centered around Texas at the time, where basically they want to give Martin Luther King maybe like one paragraph. Uh, I mean, it's unbelievable the, the whitewashing and the re revisionist history that the right will introduce. But there's another level of revisionist history that you see on the left. Just as there are people on the right who have no listening for what we've ever done wrong, there are people on the left who have no listening for what we've ever done right. And I think either extreme is dangerous. The truth of the matter is you can look at the Declaration of Independence, okay? I'm sorry, the Declaration of Independence is incredible. It is one of the most amazing documents, and it is the first document that ever established within the founding of a country the very idea that all men are created equal, the very idea that all men are given by God the inalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now, it is true that 41 of the 56 signers of the Declaration were slave owners. First of all, I point out to you that means what 15 were not, not all of those people were. But more than that, what is baked into the cake at our founding is that contest. And that struggle is reiterated with every generation. We both represent the most enlightened ideals on which any country was ever founded. And we have represented from the beginning, slave owners at the very beginning, genocide of Native Americans, segregation, and obviously the overreach of crony capitalism as it exists today. Our generation is dealing with these same things today. The, what our children need to know is that both are there. Both have always been there. But the more you know about what the ideals are, the more you know about what the Bill of Rights is. If you have a generation that wasn't taught what the Bill of Rights is when they were children, they don't know as adults to be horrified when it's under attack. And there are millions of Americans, obviously, the only real, you know, the Bill of Rights is 10 amendments to the U.S. Constitution. The only one they know about clearly is the second one, right? Well, what went wrong that they're not aware of the other nine? So what happened about 20 years ago is there was all this talk about STEM, about this emphasis in school on teaching science, technology, engineering, going back to the economic values. And that was too often at the expense of art, at the expense of the humanities, at the expense of culture, and at the expense of hi history. We have 
states that don't even require half a year of classes in civics and government and American history. Now, I believe, even though my, my politics are on the left, I understand that there are high-minded conservative values and high-minded liberal values. And so there is a way to teach American history, to teach civics, that's based on this is what these documents say. <laughs> I'm sorry, this is what these documents say. And then within that, you can have a conversation about this is where America has embodied what we say we believe in. This is where America has not embodied. But the, but the arc of American history is such that we do tend to self-correct and children need to understand this. Children need to know we had slavery and they need to know about abolition. They need to know about the institutionalized suppression of women and they have to know about the women's suffrage movement. They need to know about segregation and the institutionalized uh, suppression of, of black people and they need to know about the civil rights movement. So I, I believe that, that we need both. I think it's just like when a person is looking at our own life. Where have I gotten it wrong? Where have I gotten it right? I'm both. A nation is people. We've gotten it wrong and we've gotten it right. Let's take a good look at all of it, see where our behavior has and has not been aligned with our own values, and uh, celebrate where they have been because we haven't done everything wrong celebrate where they have been, commit even further to making sure we do stand on our values and atone for and repair where we've done it wrong and where, unfortunately, even today, we are doing it wrong as well as right in various ways. Does that make sense? Yeah, I do think it's uh, very important to teach history and civics, and the civics especially has not been taught much. I, it's been said that the one of the best criticisms of democracy is that it allows people to outsource understanding issues and rely on other people to understand them for them. But I feel like a lot of what a lot of people would say to push back against that is that the triumphs of America that you've been describing, the abolitionism, uh, the civil rights movement, that's not the stuff that gets de-emphasized. Every history class has to make choices about what it emphasizes and doesn't. And a lot of people would probably say to you that that's not the stuff that gets de-emphasized right now. The stuff that gets de-emphasized is like you talked about slavery and the genocide of Native Americans and stuff. So do you see that, that being de-emphasized? No, I think a good teacher teaches both. The, the point of our, the point of our history is the struggle between the two. Proper teaching is both, just like proper looking at yourself is both. And I think, you know, when you say it becomes de-emphasized, I think that neither needs to be de-emphasized. I think they're both extraordinarily important. There are a lot of, I mean, that's what his, that's what going to class is about. <laughs> Let's tell the truth here. And the truth is that we've gotten it terribly wrong. And the truth is that there have been generations that have stood up very courageously and changed things that were wrong. And those generations did not owe us anything. When, when we're standing up to correct the correct the wrongs in our own time, we will have the right for all this cynical lambasting of other generations who got it wrong. There, there were people, we, we are heir, yes, we are heir of a country that had those terrible things such as, such as slavery, but, but we were also heir of the legacy of abolition and the incredible sacrifices and struggles that were involved there. And correct education is teaching children that all of those things happened. You pointed out that 
when we focused on STEM, a lot of things like arts and humanities and history got de-emphasized. And part of your proposals were about the whole student approach that went just that went beyond just teaching the academic, but also including some of the social and emotional development. And there are some schools that are introducing mindfulness and meditation. And there's, from what I've seen, some great stories of success on what it can do for children. Can you tell us more about, for example, cases where you've seen that it's been introduced, that it's prioritized? Uh, yeah, tell us, uh, focusing on what actually works, right? Uh, yeah, well, you're absolutely correct. I mean, one of the things uh, running for president was very exciting was seeing all over the country that there are, as I mentioned earlier, there are problem solvers, the people who know what to do to repair this country and move us into the 21st century in a, in a thriving way. Unfortunately, they are under resourced. They are under, they are not so much disempowered as they are not given power. So I meet people in all of those areas who do extraordinary things to change children's lives. Unfortunately, however, when I would ask them how many of the kids who need these services get them, often uh, I would get eerily the same answer. Uh, if I would say in this school district, how many, how many of these success stories that you were telling me about actually reach children? And I would be told 10% over and over and over again. I would be told 10%. A lot of it has to do with nutrition. We have kids even who are getting food at school who are getting crap from the food, uh, big food companies. Whereas we have there, it has been proven, uh, by Mark Hyman's organization and various others, the extraordinary difference that healthy, nutritious food can make. We have to remember how many millions of Americans live in food deserts where they don't even have an opportunity uh, to give their children fresh fruits and vegetables. I was reading just the other day about, <laughs> this one is just mind-blowing to me. I was reading a paper the other day about how they're now allowing yoga in the schools in Alabama, but they're not allowed to say namaste. And they're not allowed, I know, they're not allowed to use any of the, of the, um, uh, the Sanskrit languaging that has to do with naming the positions, which is just hilarious to me. So you, you, you read stories all the time, whether it has to do with nutrition, whether it has to do with reading programs, whether it has to do with community wraparound services, whether it has to do with trauma informed education. We know what to do. It's not like we don't know what to do. There are people who know what to do. That is what is so tragic. Just like there are people who know what to do to introduce regenerative agriculture, that we have people who know what to do to uh, fight climate change. We people we have people who know what to do to provide solutions in so many areas. But we do not have a solution-oriented perspective on political or social change. And that is because political social change is now held hostage to forces that have more to do with the corporatist mentality of just increasing short-term profits for huge multinational corporations, which too often are the problem creators themselves. So when you say are there, there, there are solutions everywhere, Everywhere you go, this is the try. I see it everywhere. But, you know, what we have is a situation where no matter how wonderful, no matter how wonderful all these solutions are, if we do not, going back to you guys, electing, if we do not elect 
the people who recognize that this is where our funding should go, then unfortunately, the solutions will be there, but they will not be operationalized. They will not be uh, included in the way the system operates and the suffering and the decline will continue. Thank you. Well, before we finish up, do you have anything you want to plug? Yes, there is one thing I want to say about that. Um, and this goes back to what Sylvia just said. Every once in a while, you see a program on some television show about somebody who escaped. They escaped these terrible situations, and now they're going to Princeton. They escaped these situations, okay? American childhood should not require escape. That's really what this is about. Why should American childhood be a condition that requires rescue and escape? Another thing I'd like to point out is this issue of meritocracy. It is true that we have now gotten to a point, which didn't used to be true, so that's an improvement, where no matter what color somebody's skin, if they're a genius, if they're a genius at music, if they're intellectually a genius, if they're a sports genius, they are likely to find a way to rise. But that's a really important issue. You shouldn't have to be a genius to have an opportunity for a good and dignified life. That's a really big issue. Because there will be people who point to an Oprah or point to a to a Magic Johnson or point to a Tyler Perry. Well, he made it out. Yeah, but they're geniuses. So thank you very much. We're glad that's better than what happened to Bessie Smith. But it's not enough. And I think that that goes back to the Declaration of Independence. When we can put all of these issues in contrast and alignment with what our values, our perceived values are, there's a lot of power there, I believe. For persuade, for moral persuasion. That's why Martin Luther King said, we're not here to ask for new rights. We're here to cash a check. And Frederick Douglass spoke that way as well. And that's why you need to teach those kids. When I, when I was a child and I, I don't know if you, when you were, were growing up did or not, did you, when you were at school, uh, put your hand in front mm -hmm. of your chest and the Pledge of Allegiance? Well, I went into some school and they weren't, they weren't saying the Pledge of Allegiance. And I asked a friend who was with me why they weren't. And this friend of mine erupted. Because there is no liberty and justice for all. There's no fucking liberty and justice for all. And I said to him, yeah, but when I was a little girl, I put my hand in front of my heart. And I pledged allegiance, liberty and justice for all. And that's what turned me into a woman who gets really pissed when I see it not happening. The fact that I was taught as a child that it should be happening, not just by the morals of my parents or my religion, but also at school by what the purported values of this country are in terms of our constitution and our declaration of independence, that, that is what taught me what we're supposed to be fighting for and struggling for. So thank you for letting me say that. And also when you ask me, do I have anything to plug? Yes. I am endorsing progressive uh, congressional candidates. And this goes back to what I said, you guys, we've got to elect new people. The reason we do not have policies that support working people 
is because we do not have enough working people making the policies, right? Mm-hmm. And so much of that is on the level of the primary. So I hope that you will go to candidatesummit.com and see the incredible people that I've endorsed who are progressive candidates running all over the country. These are obviously not the candidates who are getting, you know, corporate donations at all. But uh, if enough of us give the $1, give the $5, give the $10, it will make a difference, a big difference in the time to get involved with that is now. So yes, candidatesummit.com. And I will be doing more of that kind of stuff. So if people go to marianne.com and my social media and you'll see. We will include all of those links in the show comments and in the video when we publish it. Thank you so much. Thank you. And I do want to say that if people want candidates to not take corporate donations, then that relies on small people making up for that. So do keep that in mind when you go to those websites. There are no small people. There are small donations, but there are no small people. And that's what the system wants you to think, that the rest of us are small people. And that the American people have been trained to expect too little. And that that right there goes against the grain. No. I mean, that's the whole idea of equality. We might have less money. But, you know, when you look at, at candidates like Bernie Sanders proved with a lot of energy and small donations, and we could do it. That everything else we're talking about, guys, none of it could happen if we don't have a massive change in the lawmaking class. Mm-hmm. As long as lawmaking itself is mainly at the behest of repressive forces, then there will be no change. So I hope that you and your friends will all go get real involved in running for office, changing things. Thank you so much, Marianne. It was a pleasure having you. Thank you. It was great to be with you guys. I appreciate it. Thank you. Ian, I think that was a really great discussion with Marianne. I felt, personally, I felt like somebody understood a lot of my frustrations with the education system and the need to focus not only on children from an academic perspective, but also from their social and emotional well-being. My daughter has struggled a lot because of the pandemic. And I wasn't, to be honest, I wasn't so worried about whether she was going to learn how to read or her numbers. I really needed some guidance on how to fix these behavioral regressions she's having because of what's happening in the world around her. And since I'm not an educator, I don't even know where to start. But thankfully, I reached out to her pre-K teacher and she explained that my daughter, for example, is a social learner. So she needs to be around other people in order to learn. And again, thankfully, she's been able to go back to school wearing masks and with a lot of other measures. But our discussion with Marianne about looking at this, not just on a very, very specific issue of academic education and focusing on things as a whole, on on human beings as a whole, not just on how much they get in a specific subject as a grade, but are they eating properly? Are they sleeping enough? Do they have a good environment at home? 
are they struggling with something outside of school? Are they stressed? Are they anxious? All contributes to their well-being. And especially as we move towards a being in a society that's less or an economy that's less based on manufacturing and agriculture and more based on interpersonal services and stuff, I think that a lot of things like that are going to become even more important to your later life. And I do think we should consider, like we talked about, how the way that education is structured is very much structured around capitalism and the idea of making kids into good workers. And obviously people are more than that. And even if we are going from that perspective, we're moving away from the kind of economy and the kind of worker that this system was designed for. I feel like this episode, in a lot of ways, gave me more things to think about, raised more questions than it answered. But I like how much my brain is thinking about this topic, to be honest with you. Yeah. And again, I want our listeners to jump into the conversation, tell us what they agree with, what they disagree with, what other tendencies of education they've seen that work or that are an absolute disaster. Reach us at Twitter at the explanation underscore pod or on Instagram at the explanation pod, or you can send us an email info at the explanation pod.com. A friend of ours is doing an internship with a nonprofit, and they are working on a very interesting project right now that we wanted to make you guys aware of. He's working for a nonprofit called the Borgen Project, which is working to try to eradicate global poverty, and right now is working on supporting women's empowerment efforts in developing countries as a means of doing that. Right now, they're specifically trying to pass the Girls' Lead Act. Globally, about 132 million adolescent girls between 6 and 17 are not enrolled in school, and they believe that promoting adolescent girls in women's education, along with a pathway to political leadership, will decrease the likelihood of child marriages, violence against women, and promote the creation and maintenance of democratic societies. So they're trying to pass the Girls' Lead Act, which provides aid to try to help with these issues in developing countries and they want to try to pass it this year. So they want to mobilize people to email and write to their Congress people in support of that bill. And they want you to go to borgenproject.org. That's B-O-R-G-E-N project.org slash action hyphen center, where they have links where you can reach out to your congressional leaders. We'll include all those links in the description for this episode as well. Thank you for listening. I hope you guys enjoyed that. If you did, the best way you can support us is by sharing this podcast with a friend. The number one way podcasts grow is by word of mouth. So share this podcast with a friend, a family member, a coworker, anything like that. You can share us on social media. You can rate and review us if you're on a platform that allows for that. I, I use Apple Podcasts, so I did not realize that not all podcast platforms allow for that. And you can subscribe so you can make sure you never miss an episode. Next week, we're going to talk to Ross Barkin, a journalist from New York who just published a book about the Cuomo administration. So if you want to catch that, make sure you subscribe. Oh, I can't wait. There's a lot of things we can talk about in the Cuomo administration. And again, you can follow us on Twitter at explanation underscore pod, on Instagram at the explanation pod, and on Facebook at the explanation podcast. I hope that you guys enjoyed that and see you next week. Talk to you again next week. Bye.